0: Welcome to the In Humble Reflection podcast. My name's Andrew Winnegar, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking about T.F. Torrance's Theological Science. I've got my notes and a glass of whiskey, so let's get into this. Now, this is the second part in a three-part series where I'm covering my master's thesis. Just by quick review my thesis is written primarily on Reinhold Niebuhr, an American theologian, theological ethicist, and political writer. Now, the reason I'm choosing Torrance, TF Torrance, that is Thomas Forsyth Torrance, as a foil to Niebuhr is that a lot of what Torrance is doing directly attacks the reasons why Niebuhr chooses to go about theology the way he does. Now, to understand the beauty of what Torrance does in his writing and why i chose him as the foil de Niebuhr, we have to understand his approach to his theology we have to understand the how of his theology his methodology to add further complication it's helpful to briefly survey the development of science specifically the transition from classical physics to modern physics and its effect on specifically two things one how we understand the nature of space and time to how we come to know what we know. And then after this technical stuff, we can get to the really good stuff. We first have to understand classical physics, or at least some philosophical conclusions of classical physics. To do this, we really need to start with Isaac Newton. And before I show how much I do not know about the history of science, Let it be sufficient to briefly state some of his biggest conclusions of his work, because really the the focus is on because really the focus is on how Torrance understood this, not Newton particularly. Or rather, the the focus is on Torrance's philosophical reflections on modern physics over and against classical physics. Um, Most of this can be found in Torrance's work, Space, Time and Incarnation. But damn, that's a dense book. Firstly, an implication of what Newton did in science was that time and space were seen as the absolute reference points for all matter and the study of matter, basically physics. Time and space, then are seen as like the, the fabric in which everything is woven. And as such, they are absolutely consistent. Another implication of what Newton did and other Enlightenment thinkers, was that all that could be known can only be known by our senses. This would be like a radical empiricism, which means that we only know things as we experience them, not as they exist in themselves. To continue this line of thought a little bit further before we get to the the big ideas, Immanuel Kant represents an advancement in this thinking. Kant was writing in response to David Hume, who rightly pointed out that one cannot observe certain theoretical assumptions that help us make sense of everything we observe, like causality or even math. To illustrate Hume's point, think of a pool table. We see uh, the cue ball hit the other balls when you're doing the initial break. And from this, we conclude that the energy and motion of the cue ball is transferred to the other balls. However, there is a bit of a leap here. We can see that one ball hit another and that the other balls started moving, but we don't necessarily know that the first ball caused the other to move. Rather, we assume that the cue ball caused the others to move. Or in the case of math, simple equations are easy to understand as just merely symbolic, but the more complicated math becomes, the more we must assume that it is still relevant to the order of the universe, even though we cannot observe with our senses things like negative numbers or the square root of negative numbers. Hume rightly pointed out that Newton took these for granted, these theoretical elements that make sense of everything we observe. Kant, however responded that these are imposed upon nature by the mind of the observer so that we can make sense of the world around us. But because these are imposed upon reality, there's no way to know if they actually correlate to reality as it exists in itself. So these two points have profound implications. Firstly, because space and time are seen as the absolute reference points of physics, space and time are imagined as the container for all existence. The problem arises for our present discussion in that there's an implicit separation between all matter in space and time and anything outside of space and time. By seeing space and time as absolutes, they act as a kind of lid that God cannot rationally intervene in or through. Anything within space and time have to be understood according to our understanding of space and time, which means our understanding of science determines the rationality of any claims to miracle or the supernatural. The second implication of this is that there's a sharp separation between ontology and empirical reality. That is, there's a separation between the inner reality of a thing and then how we experience it. Just as the philosophy of existentialism separated the essence and the existence of a thing, here we see where science separated the essence and the existence of a thing. Again, this means very little when we talk about chairs. But it means so much when we talk about things we don't experience with our senses, like God. The conclusion of this was that theology, among other things, cannot be considered a legitimate science stage left, Albert Einstein and modern physics. With Einstein's theory of relativity, space and time are no longer the absolute reference points within physics. They are subjects involved in the study of physics, especially in that they are manipulated and affected by this thing called gravity. Think back to the movie Interstellar. There was that one planet whose gravitational pull was so strong that Uh, Dr. Cooper's short time on the planet meant years for Dr. Romley. Time dilation is something that scientists have actually confirmed in experiments. Our concepts of space are also something that have gone some revision in modern physics. Two examples of of this are uh, quantum tunneling, wherein some atomic particles seem to go through barriers that, according to classical physics, they shouldn't be able to. In fact, our survival on Earth is dependent upon the quantum tunneling that occurs in the sun. Take the other example of what is called virtual particles, and these are particles that seem to pop in and out of existence. These put a few holes in the classical container model of the universe, especially when you consider the discovery of waves and fields. This reconception of space and time go a long way to setting up a a relational model of the universe, wherein all things are considered not in reference to time and space as independent existences, but in their constitutive relationships to everything else. If you remember the idea of relational ontology from the first episode of this podcast, here it is again. Now, there was one more contribution that Einstein made. It was his argument that if the new fields of physics are to be meaningful and reliable, then Those theoretical components that Kant argued are imposed by the mind of the observer must in fact arise from the object of study. It's helpful to recall that Einstein didn't conduct experiments to conclude his theories of relativity. He did math that was later confirmed in experiments. The rationality, if you will, of the universe was not merely being imposed by humans, but had to exist within the cosmos itself. And before moving on to the next point, I uh, I want to recommend for those interested in knowing more about physics, but who are like myself and don't know much about science, there's an audible lecture series entitled Einstein's Relativity and the Quantum Revolution, Modern Physics for Non-Scientists. It's a lecture series by Dr. Richard Wolfson. I would highly recommend it. This point of Einstein's is well-formulated in another writer, in the writings of uh, the research chemist and philosopher Michael Polanyi. Polanyi went a similar direction to Einstein as he reflected on the question of how we discover truth, not just confirm it in retrospect. Polanyi developed this idea of tacit knowledge. Without getting too into the weeds, tacit knowledge might be summarized as a combination of intuitive knowledge, contextual knowledge, and and just trained skill. It's all that information that your brain intuitively processes that we are unaware of. It is the knowledge that is gained when one is immersed in the field of study. It is through tacit knowledge that we begin to apprehend the inner rationality of the thing that we study, though not perfectly, of course. There's a lot more that could be said here. But here are two big takeaways from the thought of Polanyi and Einstein. First, we tend to separate subjective and objective knowledge from one another. However, if what they say is true, then these begin to be unified in personal knowledge our subjective experience of something, give us a lens into the real objective reality of the thing as it exists in itself. Like, we can have an accurate and true grasp of the world around us, but only ever like someone staring up at the expanse of the Rocky Mountains from a valley. Reality is not something we can study in a Petri dish. It looms over us. It is something that in which we are participating as we seek to understand it. We can explore it, but it demands our diligence and our humility. Another big takeaway is that knowledge is best gained when one indwells or surrounds oneself in the field of study. Imagine you were tasked with studying the Appalachian Mountains. You'd be a fool to try and put it under a microscope and study it. You have to surround yourself in its beauty and get to know it there. Books might help you in this process, but they're only aids. You must explore and experience. And then, when you have gained all that tacit knowledge of an expert, you can explore those corners of the mountains no one has ever touched. The last big takeaway is that the field or object of study determines the methods of study. If you try to study the complexities of a human brain like it's a rock, you will not gain much useful knowledge. You can't impose a foreign method of study onto an object of study. As I was preparing for this podcast, I read a story in Eugene Peterson's The Contemplative Pastor. He recalls the tragedy of the Franklin Expedition, which was an Arctic expedition in 1845. According to Peterson, they had taken to the Arctic. 1,200-volume library, hand organ, china place settings, cut glass wine goblet, sterling silver flatware, but no special clothing for the Arctic, only uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. This would be a good example of the foolishness of when we impose an inappropriate method of study upon a certain object of study. This is the fundamental axiom of Torrance's methodology, that the object of inquiry determines the method of inquiry. Okay, uh, so now how does all of this relate to theology? Well, Torrance takes these conclusions into the study of theology. Easy enough. Uh, firstly, the container model of the universe naturally excludes the legitimacy of any theology of the incarnation. I would argue that Niebuhr is a good example of this playing out. But in modern physics and a relational view of the universe, the universe is um, opened up, if you will, to the acting of God in creation. It's also important here to note, as I will probably reiterate in the next episode. That you should not conceive of God's transcendence as um, not physical or not created. This would relate to like a container model of the universe. Rather, God's transcendence is his absolute freedom over creation or limits. His freedom to act or be in creation as he pleases. This would relate to a relational model of the universe. Secondly... Theology must be done as theology. Novel idea. God cannot be known like one knows theoretical physics, and true knowledge of God is not determined from theological physics, though more will be said later on the relationship between theology and the sciences. But Torrance gives us this caution, quote, At no point then can theology build upon the foundations of natural science or seek to accommodate itself to natural science and the changes that take place in its development." The question then arises, how do we come to know God? How does he make himself known to us according to our creaturely limitations? Well, in Jesus Christ. For it is in Jesus Christ that the Son has come to us in the form of humankind to make himself known true knowledge of God must rest upon this entrance of the creator into creation, or the creator taking creation into himself. For it is in Christ, in the incarnation, in the hypostatic union, that God and humanity are united together in one person. Quote, the doctrine of Christ is the doctrine of the true and complete humanity in full union with the true and complete deity And it is in that union that the significance of both revelation and reconciliation lies, end quote. The incarnation loses its revelatory significance if Christ is not both fully and truly human and fully and truly God. It is because he makes himself known to us in the conditions of our creatureliness that God can be known. Much skepticism is given to the truthfulness or even the possibility of our knowing God because Christ was 2,000 years ago, or because he spoke and communicated with human language, as flawed as it is. More or less, skepticism is cast on Christ's truthfulness precisely because he entered into creaturely existence. But these things are not obstacles. They are necessary. For instance, God had to speak to us in flawed human language, so that when we speak of him it might not only be as an analogy to the reality of who god is but it still carries within it the truth of god god brings our language to life so that when we speak of him we can do so truthfully and he did this by taking our language into himself there is a complication however christ is not presently with us so we cannot experience god in christ in this moment. If Christ is the mediator of God to humanity, who is the mediator of Christ to humanity? This point proves that we must always be Trinitarian in our conception of knowing God. For it is the Holy Spirit who mediates Christ to us, and the tools of the Spirit are word, sacrament, and the church. Quote. By dwelling in God, the Spirit knows what God is within the imminent depths of his divine being. And by dwelling in us, he reveals to us the hidden depths of God, which could not otherwise be known or conceived by any human being. Thus, it is through the communion of the Holy Spirit, who is God and dwells in God, that we may share in the inner communion between the Father and the Son, and participate in their knowing of one another." While the person of Christ is central to knowing God, this cannot be separated from an understanding of Christ's work what Christ did on earth, and what he does at the right hand of the Father right now. These two go together and can't be separated, the person and the work of Christ. Torrance, primarily in his book Atonement, explores Christ's role as prophet, priest, and king, and his redemption as liberation, reconciliation, and justification. His role as king secures his act of liberation in which we are freed from the tyranny of sin, His role as priest secures his work in justifying us from our sin. His role as prophet, the very word of God in humanity, secures our reconciliation to God as we are united to God in Christ. It's important to say, in case it isn't already clear, that the work of Christ had to actually occur within history if it is to mean anything. Just as God revealed himself to us in the confines of human existence, So, too, did he reveal his will toward us in the confines of human existence. So, according to Torrance, the historical actuality of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ is what makes it meaningful for all reality. Here, we can see where Torrance and Niebuhr are going to disagree. Niebuhr argues that the historical actuality of Christ is superfluous for the meaningfulness of God's revelation and salvation. So, what are some important conclusions from this brief look at Torrance? Firstly, natural theology is reformulated and must be. Natural theology could be defined as the study of theology from sources that are not revelation. There are different examples of this throughout history. Maybe the biggest one is the theology of God derived from philosophical thinking. But this would also include German liberal theology, That sought to start with some of the conclusions and assumptions of their day's science and then reconceive theology. Torrance's reformulated natural theology begins with the affirmation that one cannot validate the Christian faith from outside it. If Jesus Christ is the ultimate and final revelation of God, then there can't be a higher authority to appeal to for proof of that fact. Rather, the task of apologetics is to see how Jesus Christ helps us to make better sense of the world than any other worldview. Natural theology is then the overlap between the natural sciences and religion, and their mutually informing relationship. Note, not mutually determining. It is the exploration of the different layers to reality, from what is evident to the senses, from what can be deduced by science, and then the reality of its relation to God. So, when I eventually explore how relational ontology shows up in psychology, I will be doing a kind of natural theology, because I will be relating what God has revealed about himself and us to what we have discovered in scientific inquiry. Theology allows us to peer into the inner depths of reality and should then give us a deeper appreciation of what science has discovered. Lastly, I believe in an important implication of this, is that ethics is an important part of Christian apologetics and living. Because if we cannot prove that Christ is the self-revelation of God by some higher authority, then we must be able to demonstrate its truthfulness in beauty, goodness, and righteousness. Love is our greatest apologetic tool. Quote, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. End quote. John 13.35 It's these two things, the pragmatic relation of science and theology, and the centrality of ethics and Christian witness that explains why I think Torrance is such a good foil for Niebuhr. He corrects Niebuhr, where I think Niebuhr is... Too much a product of an outdated scientific worldview, specifically that Niebuhr seems to be bound to the philosophical conclusions of classical physics that have not taken seriously the philosophical revisions of modern physics. In the end, I think this enables us to actually do better than Niebuhr. In the next episode, I'll end this series with some of my conclusions about this and reflect on some of the biggest implications for Christian ethics. If you're interested in knowing more about my research or my thesis, feel free to shoot me an email at inhumblereflection at gmail.com. Thank you for joining me on the In Humble Reflection podcast. I hope to see you on the next episode. And until then, the Lord be with you.